Investigate Joe Rogan, the podcast where I fact-check claims made on the Joe Rogan experience. Today I'll be looking at episode 1391 with Tulsi Gabbard and Jocko. I'm going to be talking about the few specific things that are brought up throughout the episode and not the majority of the episode's discussion, which is vague things that cannot really be fact-checked. And in general, I think it's a good strategy for politicians to be vague because if you're vague and make broad statements, it's easy for people to agree with you. The more specific you get, the more problems people are going to have with what you're saying. So I can respect what Gabbard is trying to do here. The first specific thing they get into is that video where Harris is seemingly laughing about locking up single moms. And that's what Gabbard says is going on in the video. And this is technically true, but they talk about it in a really misleading way. Because in the video she's referencing, uh, what Harris is talking about is a specific case where this program where they really did threaten single moms with jail time if they didn't send their kids to school. Uh, but this specific case worked really well. And it, it's like the poster child for this program she started, where they got this homeless lady off the street into like government aid, and they sent her kids to school. So it worked out. And the point of the program wasn't to send single moms to jail. It was basically to have some sort of actual legal threat over their heads so that they would send their kids to school. So you can say that this program is a good or bad idea, but they definitely talked about it in a misleading way. It doesn't really matter, though, because Harris dropped out, so whatever. They start talking about the debates after this, and Rogan sort of asks, sort of wonders aloud, if Lincoln did speeches that were hours long. He did not. However, his first inaugural address was super long for inaugural addresses. It was 3,600 words. And for comparison, the most recent inaugural address was only 1,400 words. But his most famous speeches are actually really short. The Gettysburg Address is only about 200 words. And then his second inaugural address, which is the really famous one that some people say is the best ever and is about reuniting the country, is only about 700 words. So I think this is a good lesson in equality over quantity. On this episode of JRE, for instance, they spoke for almost three hours, but said almost nothing. <laughs> and Gabbard is optimistic about the debates, and she says that people are getting tired of them, everyone knows that the format is dumb now, and that the whole thing is just ridiculous. And you, you can see this sentiment like all over on the internet, because the debates really are just absurd. And she is right that the first debate had triple the ratings of the most recent debate. And she points to this as a sign that people are sick of the debates. 
But if you look at the 2016 debate ratings, they drop off in the same way. The first debate is, is always the highest rated one, and then it goes down from there. And the debate ratings this year are higher than they were in 2016. So you could just as easily take that as evidence that people are actually more into the debates now and that they like watching them more than they did before. Probably this ratings bump is because of Trump, so I don't think you can take it as evidence that they're more popular, but you probably also can't say that people are getting tired of the debates in general. Then after talking about the debates, they get into her main issue, which is foreign policy. It's kind of her whole shtick. She says North Korea has nukes that can hit the west coast of the United States. This is not confirmed. There is no hard evidence that North Korea has this ability. And if you recall, the military has a track record of lying about who has and who doesn't have WMDs. So I'm always suspicious about these sorts of claims. She also claims that Best Korea is an existential threat to the United States. And I think this is sort of pushing the definition of what an existential threat is. Could North Korea end American society? Of course not. I mean, that, of course not. We are certainly an existential threat to North Korean society in that if they nuked us, I'm sure Trump would have no problem uh, wiping that whole peninsula off the face of the earth. But I think this is, it's very misleading of her. And then she says she would continue the war on terror and that she actually would have intervened in the Rwandan genocide, which not, not even neocons did that at the time. So her whole thing is that she wants to end regime change wars, but she doesn't really get into what, what it is she wants. She obviously would pull out of Syria but is that, is that it? Like, does she consider Afghanistan a regime change war? There's no specifics here, like there aren't most elsewhere, even though this is sort of her whole thing. So, luckily we get double commentary on this whole foreign policy issue, because Jocko comes in and uh, weighs in and basically contradicts everything she says. You know, he says, you know, Libya wasn't that bad. We should have stayed in Iraq, etc. He says a bunch of things about Ramadi that are not verifiable. You can't really say if they're true or false, such as the citizens being overjoyed to see them and that it was temporarily safer than some cities in the U.S. There's just no way of knowing whether that was true or not. He says military intervention is like helping someone in a street fight. His analysis is very simplistic, to say the least. He then starts talking about his factory <laughs> in Maine, and he says that most people in America just don't care about any of this stuff because they like their jobs. Americans like their jobs. Well, Jocko, that is wrong. According to the 2017 Gallup State of the American Workplace poll, to quote Jim Clifton, who is the Gallup CEO, 
Only 33% of American workers are engaged at work, meaning they love their jobs and try to make their company better every day. At the other end, 16% of employees are actively disengaged. They are miserable in the workplace and destroy what the most engaged employees build. The remaining 51% of employees are not engaged. They're just there. But, you know, I'm sure Jocko's factory workers are in that 33%. I'm sure they just love working at a clothing factory, making geese all day. It, so it sounds like a blast, honestly. I want to work there. At one point, he says people in Japan will want to buy his jeans because they have soul, which is a, a comment that I enjoyed. And because he brought it up so much, I felt obligated to look around the Origin main website. And first of all, they separate the clothes into two categories, top game and bottom game, which I enjoyed. There's also a Jocko Fuel section where you can buy krill oil and other such things. And the website has some great quotes too. For instance, American cotton. Those two words helped free a nation and built a country. The power of our American supply chain has been silent for too long. I can think of certain people or aspects of the nation that were not freed by those two words, to say the least. <laughs> and there's another quote. It's time we put our hands back in the dirt and built the hard-earned calluses like our grandparents. The factory jeans is the pinnacle of our quest to rediscover our heritage. Honoring the techniques of old while engineering and innovating a more durable product. Hopefully they're not they're not going back to all the techniques of old. You know, let's not get too old with the techniques here, Jocko, when it comes to cotton in America. <laughs> in in a way though, I think the broader point Jocko is trying to make here is true. And they start to talk about social media, monopolies, etc. And Rogan brings up how a small percent of people are doing all the tweeting. And this is true, but I wanted to mention the actual stat because it is very interesting. According to the Pew Research Center, 73% of American political tweets are made by 6% of American users. So when I say that I think Jocko's broad point is true, what I mean is that people who spend all their time on the internet are seeing the views of these handful of lunatics who spend all their time, you know, trying to force their ideology onto people via the internet. And then you start to think, oh, wow, everyone is so crazy and obsessed with politics. When in reality, the average person cares far less than these elite internet weirdos. So you get a skewed view of what do people actually care about? So I, I think he is right in a way. Clearly the reason Gabbard doesn't like social media and the internet at large, it seems, is because of this whole lawsuit she has with Google. And she said Google offered no explanation as to why they shut down her ad account. And this is not true. 
Their official explanation is that it was due to, quote, large spending changes, unquote, which triggered some sort of like automatic ban on her account because it made it look suspicious. Ultimately, there's no way of actually knowing who is in the wrong here. You know, you can't know the inner workings of Google. It's possible. It's entirely possible, as Rogan would say. After this, they all take great offense at the Washington Post headline, which called Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, whose name I have surely butchered, a religious scholar. And there's all sorts of outrage about this on the internet as well. But the headline is basically accurate. He attended the Islamic University of Baghdad, and he studied Islamic law and the Quran, and he has a PhD in Quranic studies from Saddam University. So I think that does pretty much qualify you to be called a religious scholar. Do they, do they need to see his published works? Do, does he need to have a certain amount of citations or something? I, I just don't think there's any sort of a point in pretending that he was a cartoon character who, you know, worked for ISIS since he was a little kid. And even when, before he joined ISIS, he was, you know, bombing neighborhood kids or something. Evil people come from somewhere. Hitler was just an art student before he was Hitler. You don't see people writing articles about how Hitler wasn't a real artist. <laughs> he wasn't a real painter. It, it's, it just doesn't do any good to pretend these aren't actual humans, no matter how evil they are. And the best, the best part of the podcast is after this, where Rogan gets into his usual spiel about how the president is an impossible job, nobody can control a whole civilization, etc. And if you recall, when I talked about this in a previous episode, I wished that somebody would go on the podcast and explain to him what the president's actual job is. And I got that in this episode. Gabbard explains to Rogan how the branches of government work, and there's checks and balances, and the president isn't all-powerful, and they don't do everything, as if he was like a child or something in like a high school civics class. And I thought this was great. Finally, Rogan understands what the president's job is. And I hope he never makes this silly point again. Thank you so much, Gabbard. Gabbard, 2020. Sadly, though... At one point, Rogan describes Gabbard as being popular, and this is just not true. If you look at Real Clear Politics, which is a big average of pretty much all the major polls, she's at around 1% in the polls. She's even lower than Yang, which is pretty sad. Uh, she, she says that she was the most Googled candidate after every debate, which is true, but that could either mean that everyone is interested in her or that nobody knows who she is, so they had to look her up on Google. It could just as easily be a bad sign. Jocko says that Rogan is the most powerful voice in media, so if that's true, uh, maybe Gabbard has a chance, 
because she's she's been on twice now and hey i mean in 2016 everybody said that trump didn't have a chance of winning so you know what anything's possible the last thing i'd like to mention is this quote from joe rogan which you may have missed in this episode but i think should be remembered he says we have so many choices but so few paths what does this mean i have been thinking about this quote since this episode came out it's so cryptic and mystical sounding it sounds like something somebody would say in dune we have so many choices but so few paths what does he mean